Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. In September 1970, economist Milton Friedman wrote an essay for the New York Times titled, A Friedman Doctrine, The Social Responsibility of Business is to Increase Its Profits. The most quoted part of the controversial essay comes from the last paragraph, where Friedman writes, In my book, Capitalism and Freedom, I have called the doctrine of social responsibility a fundamentally subversive doctrine in a free society, and have said that in such a society, there is one and only one social responsibility of business to use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase its profits so long as it stays within the rules of the game, which is to say, engages in open and free competition without deception or fraud. This essay is often credited for providing the intellectual foundations for the shareholder value revolution. But many intellectuals and business people today are advocating a new stakeholder revolution in which businesses consider their responsibilities to other stakeholders, including their employees, customers, suppliers, and wider communities. To weigh in on this debate between shareholder capitalism and stakeholder capitalism, I'm speaking today with Sanjay Bogat. Sanjay is a professor of finance at the University of Colorado Boulder. He has previously taught at Princeton University and the University of Chicago, and he's also worked previously at the Securities and Exchange Commission. Sanjay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. In Friedman's essay, was he telling corporate America to behave differently, or was he telling it to stick to its guns because of new social pressures to act differently? In other words, was corporate America maximizing shareholder value at the time? I ask this because in the 1950s and 60s, American businesses were complacent, not well run. So they started losing leadership in various industries to companies in Europe and Japan. Was Friedman's essay a response to this perceived inefficiency or is that just my theory? No, it's, uh, it's not just your theory. I think there's some truth to it. I think uh, we all perform well under uh, some level of competition. All, uh, competition does bring out the best in all of us, both as individuals and, and as organizations, whether they are uh, nonprofit organizations like universities or, uh, or uh, corporations. So in the 50s and the 60s, just after in this post-World War II era, uh, Clearly, the domestic economies of, of Europe and Japan were, you know, in the rebuilding phase, in a major rebuilding phase, and the U.S. economy was sort of humming along. So, uh, you know, we had that advantage in 50s and 60s, but advantage in the sense of our uh, infrastructure was intact, our uh, economy was humming along, and uh, the companies... Uh, uh, they didn't face any serious competition from any part of the world. And when that happens, uh, you know, that's human nature. It, uh, if, you don't, if you don't have competition, you, you don't perform as well as you would when you do have competition. So that's a valid point. 
But I mean, let me step back even before the 50s, uh, you know, maybe going back to uh, even the late 1800s or, you know, even thereabouts. So the corporate construct that has been uh, enormously productive societal invention. And uh, of course, the corporate construct depends on uh, respect for private property, the rule of law. Uh, so those are basic underpinnings. But if you, if you have that, then uh, the corporate construct uh, or the corporation has delivered enormous uh, benefit to you know, the, the human race more broadly speaking, uh, in terms of uh, wealth for individuals, jobs for employees, goods and services for customers. And there are few other economic entities that can claim uh, the extent to which the uh, corporate entity has benefited humankind. The consensus today seems to be that shareholder capitalism has gone too far. And so last August, the Business Roundtable of top CEOs released their statement on the purpose of a corporation in which they pledged to prioritize other stakeholders beyond just shareholders. So what do you think those CEOs got right with this statement? And what do you think they got wrong? So the stakeholder capitalism mostly was a media PR move on the part of the CEOs we can say that with the benefit of hindsight, uh, subsequent to publishing that statement, the actions and the behavior of the CEOs was more consistent with maximizing long-term shareholder value uh, rather than you know, trying to uh, explicitly address uh, the stakeholders like customers, employees, suppliers first uh, communities first and then shareholders at the very end. So if you look at what they, they did since then and are doing now, uh, their, their, their actions are more consistent with the shareholder maximization or long-term shareholder uh, maximization of value. Now, let me sort of address the intellectual, I guess, or the uh, conceptual problems with uh, this stakeholder uh, interest narrative. So the stakeholder interest narrative, you know, it has uh, both theoretical challenges and practical challenges. So the stakeholder narrative says that we should try to maximize the uh, welfare of the employees, the customer value, the supplier values, the benefit or the welfare of the communities that the company operates in, uh, and then finally shareholder value. So you are trying to maximize at least five uh, objectives. From a theoretical viewpoint, it is extremely difficult to maximize more than one objective uh, for any system, whether it's uh, a mechanical system, electrical system, uh, or a business system. So maximizing more than one objective is, is in general very, very difficult conceptually. But let's get to the more practical challenges. So one, it's, it is internally inconsistent. 
to just give you an example, last year, General Motors had a choice to make that it could close down some of its uh, auto plants in Michigan, lay off thousands of employees, and then uh, retool these plants and to make uh, electric, uh, electric cars. But these uh, newer um, electric car plants would only employ a few hundred employees. So their choice was, let's be environmentally more conscious in going from uh, regular uh, diesel and gasoline cars and trucks to uh, electric cars, make more electric cars, to we lay off several thousand employees, but only hired a few hundred back, so more employees get laid off. So they actually had a choice to make. Uh, so when you're saying you want to maximize the welfare of your employees and look after the uh, environment, uh, you know sometimes those objectives uh, can conflict with each other. So that's why this is internally inconsistent, number one. Number two, it leads to a lack of managerial accountability. If we accept the proposition that uh, managers should explicitly look after the welfare of employees, customers, suppliers, communities, uh, then almost any investment or expenditure that a manager makes on behalf of the corporation can be justified short of outright fraud. So there really is no way to hold managers accountable uh, to performance. So that's uh, another serious problem. A third problem, which is equally serious, is this uh, measurement of the commitment or the welfare to, uh, for employees, customers, suppliers, communities. So how are we going to measure as to how well a company is serving its employees, customers, suppliers, et cetera. And uh, if, if you do not have a good way to measure that, that leads a confusion amongst investors and policymakers uh, as to whether or not a company is performing well or not. So that's a, a third practical problem with this uh, stakeholder narrative. Well, I think, I think some, uh, some people who favor the stakeholder approach, uh, their shorthand, one of their shorthand uh, measures would be uh, if a company closes plants and opens them in another country, well, then that's a failure. Then that, then that, then that you can measure it any way you want, but that is an, that's a very clear example of a company uh, that has failed the standard, and that's that's wrong. So that's 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 one measure I hear. No. But what GM did is exactly something like what you are suggesting is they closed the plants in Michigan. They uh, scaled up some plants in Mexico to make you know, similar cars and trucks. But then uh, to offset that, they uh, retooled these, uh, their plants to make electric, uh, electric cars. And that was a plus for the environmental uh, you know, part of their uh, stakeholder interests. Right, these goals now, can let be- Let me uh, yeah. sort of, uh, uh, you know, make, I, I guess, a, another point which we tend to get uh, ignored in this uh, discussion. So if you have competitive 
labor markets and product markets, then whether you are maximizing long-term shareholder value or whether you are focused more on the stakeholder interest maximization, a company will end up making the same production investment hiring decisions. So in terms of corporate policies, corporate actions, a company that, that faces the competitive labor market and product market, for example, if a company has to compete for you know, high quality employees, then it is going to make sure that it treats its employees fairly, it compensates them fairly, there are good employee benefits, it, it um, might even uh, make investments in the local communities so the employees and their families can uh, have a high quality of life. And it will do that because it, it, it has to hire in a competitive labor market. And if it doesn't do that, then uh, these workers uh, will leave or if reputation uh, spreads, it'll have a hard time even hiring good workers. So if a company wants good employees to make its products uh, so that it can sell and create profits, i.e. generate long-term value, the objective of long-term value will then dictate the managers to uh, treat its employees well. Similarly, the same objective will also dictate them to treat their suppliers well, and clearly, if they have to compete in the product markets, they, uh, they have to treat their customers well, else the customers will go to their competition. So just this notion of uh, long-term shareholder value will uh, uh, have the managers focus on their employees, on looking uh, after the benefit, welfare of the employees, customers, suppliers, and uh, this, the same reputational effect also addresses some of the environmental concerns. So we, we have papers that we have uh, reviewed in another, uh, another article that is referenced in this American Enterprise Institute report that uh, what we show is that when companies break environmental regulations, their, their share price takes a very uh, big hit and uh, Hence, a concern for the long-term shareholder value will get the managers to focus more on uh, abiding by not just environmental regulations, but we, but we actually good stewards of the environment. The reputational effect is very, very damaging to the long-term shareholder value. So, you know, at some level, there really is not a, as much of a wedge between the Milton Friedman's uh, shareholder value, long-term shareholder value maximization, and the business roundtable's uh, stakeholder uh, interests uh, maximization. These two narratives, uh, if we have competitive labor and product markets, you know, lead to the same set, same set of corporate uh, production investment decisions. I think some of these are the stakeholder capitalism kind of proponents. They will point. They will. They will say, "Here, here are here are two reasons why we think the current system sort of not working. One, companies are too sh short-term oriented. They're not doing enough of investing. 
Uh, they got these big tax cuts recently and they put it all into share buybacks. They didn't invest the money. And two, very high CEO pay. Two examples right there how the current sort of uh, regime is failing. How would you address those arguments? So uh, there are sort of two separate arguments. So let me address the first one has to do with this uh, managerial myopia. And right. this argument had been made all the way going back to the 70s, maybe even before that. So let me sort of characterize this managerial myopia argument. So if managers are short-term oriented, they are unlikely to invest uh, uh, or invest as much as they should in R&D activities. So that should be number one, that they sh should be under investing in, uh, in R&D. And then number two, they would be unconcerned about the reputational cost of treating their employees unfairly because you know, they're only thinking short term. Right. And number three, they would produce poor quality products, the quality of which is only known, known over time. And, but since they are not thinking long term, they are not thinking about the long, about the uh, long-term revelation of poor quality of the product. Right. They're just thinking that's quarter the, to quarter, just quarter yeah. to quarter. Yeah, right. So that's the managerial myopia, uh, you know, sort of characterization. Now, this has been tested formally by a lot of uh, scholars in different contexts. Uh, Stephen Kaplan at the University of Chicago has a paper where he shows that if you look at venture capital investments, private equity investments, valuations of companies over the last uh, 30 plus years, there literally is no evidence to support this managerial myopia. Let me give you a more current example. Mm -hmm. So currently 80% of the IPOs in the US have negative earnings in the last 12 months. And many of the IPOs, the mark, when, they are, uh, when, they, when they are issued to the market, they are valued at several hundred million dollars. Many of them are valued at billions, if not tens of billions of dollars. So we are looking at the IPOs in the US. Most of them uh, you know, have negative earnings in the last 12 months. So you know, if, if the investors were myopic, uh, because this managerial myopia part of the, uh, of the argument is backed up by saying, look, investors are also myopic. Investors are not myopic because if they were, they would not be uh, valuing these IPOs at you know, several billion dollars, tens of billions of, of dollars. What investors are doing is saying, okay, this company has today negative earnings, but as its revenue starts scaling up, we think given that this is a tech company, its costs are going to more or less stay stationary so that its cash flow will keep going up over time and then in, in year five, 10, 15, et cetera, we will have very large positive cash flows. And is these positive cash flows coming, uh, you know, present value discounted, uh, these large positive cash flows in years 10, 12, 15, et cetera, that is what is leading to the valuations of tens of billions of dollars of these IPOs that have negative earnings. So this argument, has of managerial myopia backed up by investor myopia uh, in the US markets. This argument has been there for the last 30, 40 years, but every time some, some uh, 
researcher has gone and tried to test it, there really has been close to zero empirical evidence to support this managerial myopia. And then, and then I was, I, yeah, about the American, just maybe a little bit more briefly, but uh, American CEOs, they just make too much money. People seem to think it's uh, just, they make obscene compared to other countries. Okay. Are they making too much? <laughs> so I, I actually have a book on that and uh, I gave a presentation uh, on that at your very uh, institute um, a couple of years back. So the, the issue really is not how much the managers are paid, the issue is how. So if you look at the value of the US corporation in the 80s and look at the values today, I mean, the value of the corporate sector has you know, increased many, many times and you know, order of uh, magnitude. And that's in spite of the fact that managers have been paid so much. Some people might say it's because they're paid so much, they're more focused. Now, I'm not here to, I mean, I think the amount in terms of dollars that they're paid is probably a distraction or it's a red herring. What we really should be focused on uh, is how they're paid. And this is part of other, uh, uh, this long-term, uh, value creation proposition that managers should be compensated with uh, restricted stock and restricted stock options, restricted in the sense that they cannot sell the shares or exercise the option for at least one to two years after their last day in office. So what this will do is focus their attention on the long term so that will address this managerial myopia issue. It will also address many other problems that we saw back in uh, 2008 when we had the implosion of the financial markets. One of the, of the arguments that I provide evidence for is part of the reason that we had the crisis, only part, I, I don't think uh, the investment bank CEOs were responsible, but they were uh, enablers of that. Uh, their misaligned incentive compensation that was focused on the short term that led to some of that problem. But that problem goes much further back. You know, I, I provide evidence that the same thing happened with Enron and Quest back in 2000 and 2002. And more recently, the same thing is, uh, or something very similar happened with Wells Fargo and uh, First Data. So, Misaligned incentive compensation is a real problem uh, where, where if too much of the compensation comes uh, short term, then you get to see uh, problems like we saw in 2008 crisis with uh, Enron, Quest, uh, uh, Wells Fargo. So I would focus more on how they are paid and make sure that the incentives uh, are aligned with the long-term shareholder value and what I've just told you, and I've explained much further in, in my book, uh, if you keep their focus on long-term uh, shareholder value through restricted stock and restricted stock options, uh, a, lot of these, uh, a lot of these issues that get raised about management compensation, I think they will uh, become moot. Now with regard uh, to how much they are paid, you know, this how much they're paid is 
I think it's it's an issue that the media likes to talk about, but ultimately the issue arises if managers are doing very well and the shareholders are not. Notice that Bill Gates is thought of as a national hero, well, or at least he's thought of as as uh, uh, you know as a very good uh, business person, sure. uh, not just in the U.S. but in most parts of the world. And, and the reason is that, that when he did well in his company by owning the stock of his company, his shareholders did much, much better. So it was a win-win proposition. The problem arises is when the CEO does well through these large short-term uh, incentive, I mean, short-term compensation and the shareholders do badly, then, then you have a problem. And that's the problem we can solve that I've talked to you about a uh, compensation plan that's focused on right. the long term. If somehow stakeholder capitalism became the norm for the U.S. economy and corporate America, what might that look like? And what might the unintended consequences look like? The business roundtables uh, stakeholder uh, initiative, this would actually give additional impetus for public corporations, either to go private or not go public. So if the business roundtable, you know, tells corporations don't be so focused on long-term shareholder value or shareholder value in general, shareholders in these public companies would say, well, let's, uh, let's go private. Then at least we will not have to face the scrutiny or this public criticism and then you have uh, private companies like many of these unicorns uh, that are now going public and worth tens of billions of dollars. The unicorns, uh, meaning highly valued public tech companies, they will think, well, let's not go public because if we do, then we will be subject to all kinds of criticism about creating, about our focus on creating long-term shareholder value. So the question is, you know, who cares if we have fewer public companies? So what? Right. Well, that, that leads to a problem. Let me explain. Over the last 30 years or even longer, the number of publicly held companies in the U.S. has systematically gone down. So the number of public companies has gone down. The size of the remaining public companies in the U.S. has gone up, even adjusted for inflation. So, uh, so, you know, one might say, so what? Is it, so what if you have less public companies? Well, as the public markets reflect a smaller segment of the economy, the citizens and voters in this country that own stocks of public company will relate less closely with the U.S. corporate sector. So now who are we talking about, you know, stockholders? Well, if you look at December 2019, there were 56 million U.S. households and that have roughly 104 million U.S. citizens, i.e. voters, that owned mutual funds. And incidentally, half of these households owning mutual funds, they, they, have, they are from the lower income or moderate income uh, group. So if you have less public companies in the U.S., then the voters, the shareholders in these lesser number of public companies, 
they will identify less and less with the US corporate sector. So what would this do? For one, it would lead to uh, increased concentration. And what we have argued earlier, if you have increased concentration among company that would lead to diminished competition right. and diminished competition is not good for either uh, our employees or customers, that's one. The other impact is which, uh, which might be even more serious is uh, if you have less, lesser number of citizens uh, owning stock of the remaining public companies, then there is less support for the US corporate sector and that will result in, in more regulation, higher levels of taxation. So when the business round table, uh, you know, uh, is very vocal in criticizing long-term shareholder value propositions, they are essentially undercutting the uh, promise and the premise of public corporations in the country in the long term. So that's the other problem with this uh, stakeholder uh, interest paradigm, if you but, will. But the fact that though that they that they release that letter doesn't does that then reflect that they feel that they're under some sort of political pressure, other kind of pressure to at least seem as if they take these concerns uh, seriously? Well, that's, uh, that would be, I guess, a, a kind, charitable way of looking at it. <laughs> I think, uh, I, I'm not sure how many of them have thought through it this carefully that, you know, if we become too critical of shareholder value, we will have fewer public companies and even private companies that would have gone public will not go public. Hence, we'll have less competition uh, in the product markets, labor markets that will actually uh, end up having the negative effect on employees and customers that we are talking about. And then it will also undermine the support for the US corporate sector that we have today because uh, you know, 104 million uh, voters, citizens in the country own mutual funds. Uh, so if lesser number of them own that or they own lesser number of corporations, you'll not have the same level of support. So I don't think they, they I mean, I, I, you know, they, it was uh, signed by the CEOs. So they clearly put a lot of intellectual, uh, I guess, uh, uh, force behind that, I'm sure. But I, I'm not sure if they thought through at least this unintended co consequence uh, very carefully, or at least I have not heard anybody other than uh, Glenn and I, we articulated that in our in our paper. In Sanjay, I, I think we've I think we've just discovered evidence of corporate shortism. That was a very short sighted letter. <laughs> well, I guess that uh, that might be unkind to them. <laughs> you know what we've learned over the past half century? If you could go back to 1970 and change anything about Milton Friedman's essay, what might it be? You know, I think. Uh, I don't know, uh, by and large, what uh, Milton Friedman said back in uh, 50 years back, almost to the very day, I think is, is very good prescription for corporations and corporate CEOs, not just in the US, but, but globally, to be focused on long-term value creation, shareholder value, but to follow the rule of the rule of law, follow the law of the land, uh, clearly not 
uh, not engage in any fraud or, uh, uh, or any dishonest behavior. So that is, is entirely valid. But there are you know, some limits to shareholder value maximizing corporate actions. So uh, you know, while companies have enormous financial resources and they can significantly impact the welfare of the employees, customers, and communities they operate in, uh, even these large and well-resourced corporations are limited in two important ways. And this becomes relevant if you're talking about climate change, you know, what can corporations do about it? What, what should they do or what can they do? Well, uh, corporations lack behavior changing modifying tools that all state and county governments have, i.e. the power of criminal prosecution and legal coercion. So that power, even the most powerful corporation doesn't have, but even your local uh, state or city government or uh, county government has that power. And while corporations can impact the behavior of their employees, customers, suppliers, they cannot uh, impact the behavior of citizens that choose not to be their employees, customers, or suppliers. The larger social issues that we're talking about, for example, climate change or the environment, uh, that would need compliance from most or all citizens and not just of this country, but globally. And then only the state's criminal prosecution and coercive powers can lead to compliance by the broader citizenry. So there we have you know, one limit to shareholder value maximizing. I mean, you cannot expect uh, this to accomplish uh, what power resides only with, uh, with the state and with the cities. And then, of course, there, there are other limits that were implied in what uh, Milton Friedman said, but I wanted to make it explicit. So, you know, we, uh, the antitrust laws, they have to be really enforced because a lot of what we talked earlier, uh, you know, we, we, we have to have competitive labor markets and product markets. And so these antitrust laws have to be enforced uh, much more uh, aggressively. And then, uh, you know, we, we have corporate tax policies that uh, affect levels of corporate profitability, location decision, wages paid to workers or in incentives to in invest. Uh, so these will, you know, there are limits to shareholder value maximizing uh, corporate actions. But even in, in these cases, what is important to note that these public policy interventions that we talked about, like the antitrust laws, corporate tax policies, these are a complement, not a substitute for long-term shareholder value maximization. My guest today has been Sanjay Bugat. Sanjay, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. 